Welcome to the Ugly Things Podcast. I'm Mike Stacks, the editor and publisher of Ugly Things Magazine, the longest-running, independently published rock and roll magazine in the world. For this episode, we dug back into the Ugly Things tape vaults for an interview I recorded back in January 2014 with Ian McGloggan of The Small Faces and later The Faces. Mac, as his friends and fans called him, joined The Small Faces on November 1st, 1965 after stints with the Mule Skinners and the Bars People. He replaced Jimmy Winston. The group already had one hugely successful single under their belts, What You Gonna Do About It? Mac made his live debut just two days later and he was plunged straight into a seething, chaotic world of teenage hysteria. We'd come out for a show and there'd be screams for Steve, Ronnie and Kenny, he told me. And soon enough, screams for Mac. And I thought, they're mad. I'm not a star, I'm just a geezer. Just a geezer pretty much summed up Mac's refreshingly unpretentious attitude towards himself and his achievements. He was one of the most down-to-earth, affable blokes you could ever meet. Anya and I actually met him a couple of years earlier when he played a gig in San Diego with his bub band. A new Small Faces box set on Charlie titled Here Comes the Nice was the premise for our interview. But of course we ended up chatting about lots more. It was a genuine pleasure to talk to him. The interview appeared in issue number 37 of the magazine. Sadly, Mac passed away unexpectedly later that year. I'm happy I got to know him a little bit and that I'm able to share our conversation with you. Thanks for talking to me. Well, thanks for calling. I appreciate it. So, you've been in the States now for how long? 35 years, since 78. So, you, you practically, well, yeah, you never, you never really... I, American, I'm, I'm American, yeah. I mean, you know, I go over there, everyone says, oh, your voice is soft, and I say, bloody wood, I've lived here longer than I lived in England. Yeah, and, and you need to be understood, so some of the yes, edges exactly. start going off. You know, I say tomato over here. Yeah. I say tomato over there. You get sick of people laughing when you say tomato. Oh, it's so I know. cute. <laughs> I love your accent. Can you say that again? <laughs> so, uh, all right. Um, in a nutshell, you know, after years of buying the Small Faces material over and over in different packages, why should Small Faces fans buy this new box set? Well, very good reason. A, there's stuff on there they've never heard. And there's also uh, stuff on there I've never heard since the day we recorded. That's all those kind of intros and bits and pieces and early versions. Uh, plus, the fact is, the remastering has been done from really good quality stereo uh, masters. So in, in the past, whenever anyone's put anything out of ours, usually without our permission and often without paying us, they've done it from vinyl or from really bad copies. Right. Um, so the, the quality is shite. You know, I, I was listening to the radio the other day here in Austin, and uh, the DJ put on Here Come the Dice, and I've never heard it so good, you know. It's never been as good as this. It's, uh, this is like listening to it in the studio the way we, you know, we've finished it. Yeah, I noticed so, that too. The, the, the bass and the drums in particular, they really 
you know, they have a sort of, uh, there's, there's like a rich sound to it, you know? Yeah, yeah. Real presence, it's well, great. Well, Rob Cage has worked extremely diligently and over a long period of time and has just, you know, put his head down and gone for it. And he's found um, some of them, the stereo masters, were in Sony's vault here in America somewhere. And we would never have found, found. They've been there for years and years since we uh, made the records. And they've never been used. And, you know, all the copies that have come out have used copies of copies of copies. And, you know, they're all crap. So I'm indebted to him uh, for going to such lengths because, I mean, it's made a big difference. And it's, this stuff has never sounded as good. And also he's, he's, he's returned some tracks to their original speed, like some of the live stuff was sped up. Yeah, yeah, and with some additional screaming, audience screaming that yeah, they were dubbed yeah. on and everything. Well, it's funny, uh, I, I, I met Noel Gallagher the first time I met him. We, we exchanged handshakes and hugs, and then he said, you know, he said, we got a single out at the moment that's uh, supposed to be live, he said, but uh, we've dubbed the audience from Tin Soldier, from your Tin Soldier, onto our, onto our thing. I said, well, in that case, you owe us a royalty. And he said, yeah, it's not going to happen. I went, you fucking bastard. <laughs> Pretty funny, first meeting. But so that was obviously uh, enhanced originally, so it's doubly enhanced on his record, whatever it was. Yeah. Well, I like the idea. He liked, that. he liked the applause we got, so he stuck it on their fucking record. <laughs> Going back to the beginning when you were with the Mule Skinners, right. I think you were using um, a Hona keyboard instead of... Hona Zembalet. Right. E-M-B-A-L-E-T. It was horrible. <laughs> it, it was like a harpsichord in that um, when you hit a note, it actually... The key, it wasn't the key, it was a time. It was, the pad was stuck to it, so when you hit a note, it pulled away from it and plucked it like a harpsichord wow. as against a hammer which hits like a piano so it felt it looked like a keyboard well it looked like a piano but it played i mean there was no you couldn't play gently couldn't you couldn't play a, a note soft because every time you hit a key it would, bang, it would <laughs> so it was horrible to play <laughs> but it was cheap and it was all i had until i got hammered so when and how did you make the switch to Hammond? What was it first attracted you to, to, the, to that big Hammond sound? Well, we only recorded uh, a couple of songs with, um, with Small Face, and I think I had it by then. I haven't listened to Backdoor Man. I'm not sure if you... Oh, maybe I was playing the, the Sambalette on that. We only had two tracks uh, I recorded, I remember. And then with the Small Faces, I, I got the Hammond. I was already playing the Hammond when they took me on. So okay, so but but did you have it in uh, in Boz people? Were you already on the Hammond then? Yes, I believe I was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you remember what you know? Who inspired you to sort of get the Hammond? Was it here? In oh Bo yeah, it was Booker T. For yeah. sake. Booker yeah. T. Jones and none other. Right, right. I mean, uh, oh yeah. When I heard Green Onions, I just went, "Fuck me, that's I want that sound." And then when I got the album, and I heard. Because Green Onions, he doesn't use the Leslie. He's using an M3. Uh, but he later on, he, he used... Uh, I don't know if he put a Leslie to that, or it was a different Hammond, but I think it was an L or an M, because some of the tracks he's using in Leslie. And I, I heard that, and I thought, 
car. He's turning it on and turning it off quickly. So you just get a little bit of movement. And so I practiced that. I could, and I got it, got my tones exactly like he did for Green Onions, or tried to, you know, just figured out my sounds from what sounds he had. Yeah. Because his sounds were so good, you know. Wow. Well, I was lucky. I, um, I saw an ad in the back of the Melody Maker from Boozy and Hawks, an ad that said, have a Hammond organ in your own home. Two weeks free <laughs> approval. Call blah, 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 blah. I called blah, blah, blah. And the guy said, yes, we need your address. And the next day they delivered. Well. Brand new L100 and Leslie. Uh, I hadn't told my parents. I hadn't thought that far ahead. <laughs> and it was for nothing. And my dad came home that night and I said, yeah, Dad, I've got a Hammond. He says, what's that? I said, well, it's free. And he said, oh, yeah? <laughs> and he walked down the hallway and looked in the back room, and it took up the whole room, kind of, because there was a table in our dining room, or had been until that night. And he said, well, it's big. I said, yeah, but it's free. <laughs> he said, oh, I'll have to tell your mum. I'll explain this to your mum. <laughs> and two weeks later, I'd already learned green onions and a few other things, and uh, they came and took it away and my dad signed papers and I got my Hammond. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was so fucking lucky. I mean, nobody, I can't think of anybody, I've never heard that story from anyone else. Nobody else did that. I mean, people may have done it but they weren't thinking of being in a band using a Hammond because they were heavy. They, were, they hurt your fingers to pick them up. They were really not meant to be picked up. Yeah. So how was that to transport, or was that not your problem? You had the roadies to take care of it. Oh, no, no, this is before roadies. No, New York Skinner's been no roadies, all those people. It was <laughs> us. Yeah, and uh, in later years now, in these years, I always, when I get, pick a new band member, I always make sure he's strong and not fat. <laughs> all fat people in the band, because you've got to be in a van. And you'll eat too much. And you'll spend too much time over dinner. <laughs> these, are, these are rules. And then, then comes the thing, oh, can you play? That's kind of, you know, secondary. <laughs> yeah. Very important to have a fit band. Well, I don't lift it these days. I have a, a hydraulic lift on the back of my sprinter van. So I just have to kind of raise it, because it's, got, it's on the dolly. Raise it out the door, that's all, and it's on wheels. Yeah. And I don't lift it on the stage. I always have to that's in the contract. Yeah, yeah, I would hope so. So, uh, moving on to the small faces. Right. Soon after you joined the band, you all moved into the house in uh, Westmoreland Terrace in Pimlico. Yeah. Can you sort of describe the house for us, or maybe sort of describe a, a typical day at Westmoreland Terrace? Well, it was a four-story house. It had a basement where we had a piano, and uh, it was really our breakfast room, but there was a piano, an upright piano there. The hallway had the Hammond, because we would, it would uh, be delivered back to the house after a series of gigs, so that you have to walk around the Hammond, which was outside Ronnie Lane's bedroom, which was on the right as you go in, and the next bedroom was Mick O'Sullivan, who was our, uh, Steve's friend, he's an actor, but he did nothing but roll joints and uh, eat our food and uh, hang out, really. <laughs> and uh, then there was a bathroom ahead, and the stairs to go downstairs to the kitchen and the breakfast room, and uh, you go up the stairs to uh, the sitting room, which was on the first floor. And the sitting room was the whole house. It was actually two rooms had been knocked through. And uh, that's where we used to get very stoned, our record player. And uh, then up the stairs again 
to Steve's massive room and my tiny room. <laughs> so he got first pick, I, I suppose. Well, he got first pick, and I could have picked Micah Sullivan's room. I would want to be downstairs by the front door. Uh, it, it, it would have been the smart move, but it's too late now. And I thought, oh, I'll be, this is all right. This is all I need. And it was so tiny. It was really a single bed and the space around the bed on one side. And I had piles of books and piles of records and piles of clothes. I had a little uh, a dressing area on the, the uh, landing outside. I had a wardrobe and uh, a chest of drawers. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, it was great because we could play. We could smoke dope and drink and listen to music and play music all fucking night, every fucking night. Wow. Well, that's when we were there because we were always on the road doing the very same things. But it was uh, heaven. Yeah, I imagine. So Steve and Ronnie were writing most of the songs. but Yeah. So you must have seen that. You know, what, what was the process? How, how did it generally happen? Who would come up with the first thing or, or was it? Either one, you know, uh, and we'd be on the road or we'd be at the house or be in a car and, um, you know, back at the hotel would always be the the thing because there's nothing to do back then in hotels. You're up in uh, Whitley Bay or something, used to stay at the wrecks every now and again. Anyway, uh, they'd have the guitars, we'd have guitars and, um, I mean, I do remember all or nothing. I mean, he had that pretty much done. Steve. yeah. Yeah. And we would go in the studio on the way to gigs. You know, we would, that we weren't long in the studio. Don Arden didn't allow us much time in the studio. This was IBC on Portland Place, opposite the BBC. It was down in the basement. And we'd, we'd go there in our stage clothes because we were on, on the way to a gig. And we'd play for a couple of hours, get a track. Steve would do vocal. We'd do backing vocals on track three. And he solos, me or Steve be on track four and then Don would say right if he was there but we knew what we had to do was to make a b-side and we didn't always have songs so that's why we had three instrumentals as b-side <laughs> yeah right but so, those are great like grow your own i know but i get people <laughs> to this day say oh can you play grow your own i go we played it once it was a jam get it <laughs> yeah. Own up time. It was a jam. We only played it once. Some of them we did rehearse a little bit more, but you know, it was like, okay, Mac, you start. <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, on the A side, how worked out with the arrangements before you went in the studio? Did you have them down pretty much, or, or was there a lot of uh, fiddling around? No, it was just a question of playing the song, really. I mean, generally, the songs were, you know, except for Shalala Lee, which they didn't write, or, you know, Hey Girl, which they did, which was you know, trying to write a pop song. But, I mean, they hit, the, hit it with all or nothing. And, uh, you know, a few other things that... Uh, you just knew what to play, you know, it wasn't kind of complicated. Yeah. Um, it, it, it was pretty much soul, so, you know, I'm in a soul band, I'm a soul band player. Yeah, yeah. You know, often, if I ever didn't have, couldn't think of what to play, especially later on in the Faces days, uh, 
Ronnie would write something and I wouldn't know what to do. And I'd, I'd say, you got any ideas? He'd say, well, that's a melody I've got. You might use that. And he always had a little melody that I could use and that would just get me into the song. Because I, I always, my job really was to find a place that no one else was playing and not to be uh, too noticeable, really. I mean, I always took it, I'm in a guitar band. Yeah. The guitar is playing the chords, so that's okay. I'll, that's covered. Always got a lick that I can play a chord right there, you know. It's just feel, really. I just, you know, I'd find my way around whatever else is playing. Or I'd come up with an idea and everyone else would find their way around it. Yeah, it really, it really worked, the, the balance between you, your organ and, and Steve's guitar, because with a hammer, it's very easy for that to overwhelm everything. Yeah, it's true. It's true. But, I, you know, I always consider it, and I, even my band, although it's my band, I consider it a guitar band, and I'm playing... I mean, some songs are piano or organ-based, but if that isn't the case, uh, then I, I have to... I mean, it's just back to being in the small faces or faces. I'm finding my place around the guitar and the bass. Yeah. And the drum. Well, um, the box set sort of picks up the story in sort of late late '66, and then you, by then you were sort of making the transformation from a soul group into something a bit more psychedelic. Well, yeah, we took acid uh, in '66, and <laughs> I was um, going to say what it brought about the change was that it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we had Owlsley's acid from uh, San Francisco. You couldn't get better than that, and I'm so glad we had good trips. Uh, Steve didn't have as good trips as me and Ronnie, but uh, and he stopped doing it. But um, he was too wiry. He didn't. He thought he could um, outrun acid. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. You have to give yourself up to it. And Steve didn't like to give up control, <laughs> so he controlled him, and he didn't wasn't happy about it. <laughs> so how? In what way did that affect your music? You know, could you sort of explain? Well, how? I think you know it made a search really. You know. I mean, we listened to music on acid. Um, we'd listen to, um, well, I remember us listening to Paperback Writer when that came out, and, and Rain particularly, and playing it over and over, and playing it at 33, playing it at 16, playing it at 78, and it sounded exactly the same. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, I mean, we listened to a lot of music, but it was more contemporary. I, I drew, I, I, I did a lot of drawing on acid. Um, my last album, Never Say Never, there's a self-portrait in there that I drew that first acid trip in Westland Terrace. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, I'm wearing a, a I Love's King Mojo t-shirt from Sheffield, and uh, I still have the t-shirt. And oh, wow. uh, anyway, you'll, if you look at the cover, you're back and front, I'm wearing the t-shirt, my wife's wearing it on the back. Oh, That's wow. when I first, she and I first got together. In '73, and uh, so there's a theme that, anyway, it, it's irrelevant to all this. But I, I, I drew a self-portrait of me wearing that T-shirt, and uh, that's pretty much what I did. But when it came to recording, we tried very hard to replicate the acid trip, but it's fucking hopeless. And also, I think there's so many crappy films came out at that time. I'm not a fan of. Uh, I mean, the Beatles got it going. I think we. Managed to do it on a couple of tracks, but 
Um, it's just, you can't do it. It's just, you know. So we went back to being a soul band, which was where we were, you know. That's how we should have been. Yeah, right. a distraction, really. A fantastic distraction. But <laughs> I mean, if I could take a trip of that quality today, I would. Yeah. Now, uh, you talked about when you were still with Ard and you were sort of rushed in and out of the studio. When you got signed yeah. to Immediate, were you given more freedom and more studio time? Yeah, Andrew uh, realized um, we were recording in uh, IBC and then um, I think it must have been at the same time when we signed with uh, Immediate, we got to use um, Olympic. And Glenn had been on most of the sessions, like 90% of the sessions at IBC anyway as an engineer. And so he continued Olympic. I think it was probably because he was recording there. That's where we went. And um, it was the best thing for us because Glenn was fantastic. He actually mixed my last two albums, my new album, which won't be out till June, and the last one. And it was just such a delight to be with him again. He's so fucking brilliant. Yeah, and you're still on the same wavelength, I guess. Oh, yeah, totally. He never changes. You know, you can... You can um, you misquote him, and you go, oh, no. I mean, he's dead sure about something. <laughs> <laughs> it's really funny, you know. He, he never changes. He's very, very, uh, he's on it, man. I love him, yeah. <laughs> so, but I asked him uh, years ago when I was writing my book, All the Rage, I just called him up about just one thing. And he said, Mac, he said, I was in the Olympic. He said, I'd be looking down at the desk. I'd look up, and you lot would be in there. I'd look down, I'd look up, it'd be the stones. I'd look up again, it'd be the, uh, the Beatles, I'm not sure, um, uh, the Who, Traffic, the Faces, you know, yeah. Eve Miller Band, Joan Armour Trading, you know, blah, 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 blah. He said, I don't know, don't remember the difference between the sessions. It was the same desk, same window, same chair, same room. <laughs> I'm sure he's lying because he, now he's writing a book. And he'll have to remember things. Yeah. I'll, maybe I'll get a phone call. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Tell me about Olympic. What, what did you What did you like about Olympic other than Glenn, of course? Well, uh, the thing is, it was a big room. IBC was quite a small studio, and um, I know there was. I, I think there was a grand piano, but there certainly was an upright. Olympic, we had a beautiful Steinway, a grand piano, an upright. There were tubular bells. There were timpani because they did a lot of film music there, so that stuff was on hand, you know. Yeah. So, bit by and a harpsichord and um, all kinds of stuff. You know, it was, uh, it was just, that was a real studio. And so, you know, we, we got to play these instruments. It was uh, fucking amazing, really. So, what, you know, how long were, you, were your sessions? Would you go in the evening, the afternoon? What, what was it generally? Well, Glenn, I, I, I spoke to Glenn about this and I, I, I thought we would go in like about noon, but, that apparently was not true. We basically went at about six at night. Glenn would be uh, at a session from nine in the morning. Uh, so he was doing nine to five, grab something to eat, and 
then we would start. Whether he was at Olympic or somewhere else, I don't know. And then we would start. We'd go till midnight, <clears throat> and then he'd quit. And it always struck us as annoying that he would quit at midnight. We didn't know he was in a session all day, you know. <laughs> yeah, right. Completely oblivious and quite brutal. But um, he'd quit, and he said, well, I don't know about you guys. He said, I'm going home. And he'd get in his E-type Jaguar, and he'd, off he'd go. We carried on till three or four, maybe five, and then, you know, have an easy day, go to, go to sleep, have something to eat, get in there at six, start again. Uh, we had no idea that he was working twice as hard. So we thought it was rude that he would leave at midnight. We just thought, <laughs> well, he never, he never took dope or any drugs. And we were smoking dope, occasionally taking pills, having a drink. And uh, he knew we would go on and carry on and get stuff done, but it was... It'd be less and less productive as the hours went by. Yeah. But we would, you know, we just like work it. You know, we were thrilled to be in the studio. So after Glenn left, who would be driving things? Would it be Steve or Ronnie or, or would it be... Oh, all three of us. We, we already, you know, we knew what we had. Like, he'd leave, we'd light another joint and go, right, let's get those backing vocals done on that song, you know. And you still had an engineer. There's an organ solo needed on here, so I just go straight to it. There's no, no big discussion, you know. It's like, right, let's go. Boom. And if it was Eddie Kramer or Andy Johns or George Kiantz, right. uh, who was the inventor of phasing, the man himself, um, they just carry on. We we would be producing or, you know, do piano. The mics are already beyond the piano, so. Yeah. Organ, the mics are already on it. Guitar amp, it's already mic'd. Just a question of doing the part, you know. Right. Did you sometimes work out songs right there in the studio that you... You know, with Steve or Ronnie, just say, oh, yeah, how about this They were ready, you know. Uh, with Faces, we did, we did more. Actually, I found a sheet on the back of uh, the lyrics that Ronnie wrote, You're So Rude, was actually a date sheet that we would get mailed to us. And uh, I thought for the first time that we had two days rehearsal before we went into Olympic. Now, whether we actually turned up for the rehearsal was another matter. Because <laughs> <laughs> by the time the Faces, we were getting pretty bloody-minded. We, we used the expression, fuck the gig, you know. <laughs> um, so I, I, but I believe we actually rehearsed for a studio. With the small faces, the rehearsal would be done backstage or on stage or in hotel rooms or at the house. And we'd just go in and we'd be ready. We had several songs to cut. Right. Later on, when we were uh, getting stuff ready for Ogden's, when uh, we actually lived together again, Steve, Ronnie, and I, and uh, we took a boat trip down the Thames with three boats, and I had the biggest boat because they'd run out of little boats, and I had a seven berth, and they had a two berth, and uh, I had my wife and dog. We all had our dogs and wives or girlfriends, and we'd meet in my boat because it was big enough, and we'd play guitars together. I had my guitar, and that's why I got songwriting credits because I would come up with ideas. They couldn't deny me at that point. They couldn't yeah. hide away and be Marriott Lane. It had to be Lane McLaggen at that point. Right, right. If yeah. I had only stayed together another couple of years, I could have made some money. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's uh, let's talk about one song that you did write and to get, get credit for Up the Wooden Hills of Bedfordshire. Sinking down into the deep That's the time of no time When you're slipping into sleep All the sounds around Seem to have a new meaning Leave your body behind 
What was the inspiration for that one? That was Ronnie Lane. Ronnie Lane's dad. Ronnie, Ronnie Lane told me that his dad would uh, carry him upstairs to bed when he was very small. And he'd say, here we go, up the wooden hills to Bedfordshire, meaning up the stairs to bed. <laughs> yeah. And I thought it was a nice picture. His dad was a lovely, lovely man. And uh, I, I got the picture. So I, I, I was talking about getting high, but it basically, you know, slipping in sleep, getting high is the same thing, you know. <laughs> yeah. <to> me. <laughs> so that's really what that was about. I got the title from Ronnie. I love that song. It's my wife's favorite Small Faces song, actually. Very nice. Sweet. <laughs> oh, you know, it's great. They wouldn't write with me, but they'd let me write my own and let me record it, which was pretty amazing. So there was no objections at all. They were very supportive. No, they were very supportive. Yeah. So I, I want to just maybe throw some song titles at you and then you can kind of give me your take on them if you have any specific memories of them or, or not. Okay. Uh, how about Tell Me, Have You Ever Seen Me? Uh, we were starting to use these Chinese instruments. We were you know, following the Beatles, you know. We thought, well, they've done Indian. Steve went into this Chinese shop uh, on the Edgware Road and bought a bunch of these instruments. And some were like little banjos, kind of. It was like a skin and a thin neck with a couple of strings. Hey, I've seen a picture and, of him playing one, yeah. Yeah, there you go. And uh, one was a, it was basically a harmonica, but it was, um, it had a mouthpiece like um, a saxophone. And it had these, a body, it was a very small thing. And it had these horns sticking out of it. And by holding different notes, it was like a, say a flute, leading yeah. into a reed, a little box with reeds in it. So it'd be like having a, not a flute, but I mean, so you like a recorder. Yeah. Uh, if you had half a recorder attached to a harmonica, so you're blowing. <laughs> yeah. And you're, as you pull the notes there, it, it changes the note as you push your fingers down, which was interesting because you could play chords, like saxes, you know. Like yeah. So I used that on either Tell Me, Have You Ever Seen Me, or That Man. I think it might be That Man. Yeah. They, they were recorded around the same time at IBC. That's my memory anyway. That's interesting. Yeah, I think it might be that man. And we were, I think we were recording on, on eight track at that time. So um, unless IBC got an eight track before we quit there, because maybe it was just four track. Because any overdubs, you know, I mean, if you have, the, the band was track one, uh, vocals was track two, any backing vocals were three, and then the solos would be on four, solo, whatever. Uh, I think that maybe it was just on four track. Yeah. Bridge of sights to rest my eyes in shades of green under dreaming spots to Ichiku Park. That's where I've been. What did you do there? I got high. What did you feel there? Well, I cried. But why the tears there? Tell you why. What about Ichiku Park? Was that easy or difficult? To record it and, and let's talk about the phasing as well. At what point well, uh, you know, the day before, uh, George Kiant got in touch with me. He emailed me and I gave his email to Rod Cager, who was putting the box set, but he failed to get in touch. 
or he didn't respond. Uh, he did get in touch with it. I don't think he responded or emails not current. But George sent me a very long email explaining what had been going on. He'd been recording uh, uh, All You Need Is Love with the George Martin of the Beatles. Right. And they needed to play back. They need to record live and play back um, on different machines. And when they did, when George set it up, a strange thing happened because he played the same thing from both machines, and they were, it was phased because his, uh, analog machines aren't exact, you know. Yeah. Like if they were two digital machines, you'd start at the same time. In 20 years, they'd still be playing the same, you know. And so they phased, and uh, that name was born. Anyway, he discovered it, and he showed it to George Martin, and he didn't know uh, what to do with it. He was impressed. And he showed to Glenn, who I was either on the session or was the next day. And Glenn said, "That's fantastic. Let's. We got the small face coming in tomorrow. Let's use your memory." He said, "Oh no, he said I have to it'd take me hours to send it up." And so he did. It's only on the drums, but it was such a great effect. I mean, it was the first time it ever been recorded, and uh, amazing feat of uh, technology from George Kiernan. But we couldn't replicate it on stage, and it was the beginning of hell for us because we were getting too clever. The Beatles could be as clever as they wanted because they weren't touring. Yeah, yeah. And the Stones tried it and then went back to their roots and carried on. <laughs> we tried to, you know, Ichiku Park was fucked live. We couldn't, you couldn't play an acoustic guitar on stage back then. There was no way to amplify it without getting feedback, and we couldn't get the drum sound. And we weren't much of a live band at that time because of it. We were a great live band until all that shit happened. Yeah, and then it would be difficult. Yeah, but were you were you excited about it when you know when he, oh, when he yeah. played I back mean, the phase? I loved the you... record. I, years went by, and I, I I mean I really hated it because I hated singing. It's all too beautiful. <laughs> and uh, many years later, I was making an album of Ronnie Lane's songs, and it was mainly his song that one. Uh, except for the bridges, the ducks for the bun and all that bollocks. But, um, <laughs> so I wasn't going to record it because I'd never liked it, because it would always been a pain to sing and to play live. But I listened to it and listened to the words for the very first time. And uh, I found that Ronnie was singing not about getting high, he was singing about education in England and privilege he said, you know, under, under Bridge of Sighs, which is Oxford or Cambridge, I never know which is which, uh, to rest my eyes in shades of green, under Dreaming Spires, which is Cambridge or Oxford, which is the other one. Yeah. To rest my eyes. And to interview Park, that's where I've been. And he's saying, I didn't have money or privilege, I didn't have uh, education, but I saw the beauty of a metal patch in the east end of London. It's all too beautiful. And that's how he was thinking of it, like acid. It's all too beautiful. So I recorded it at that tempo. It's all too beautiful. Like with heart, you know. And yeah. that's how the song, that's how he had the song. I think that's, I think he would have liked my version. Yeah, it's definitely got some different levels to it rather than just being just yeah, a silly pop it, song. It, I was, it took me till 90, 
whatever. Sixty-seven. <laughs> well, no, two thousand and something. Uh, before I, I listened to the lyrics and realized quite a different song. Yeah. It's on my album, uh, Spiritual Boy, an appreciation of Ronnie Lane. <laughs> okay, I'm going to check that out. Here's another one I'd like your memories of. Eddie's Dreaming. Eddie's Dreaming was Ronnie's salute to Eddie Thornton, Eddie Tan Tan Thornton, who was a trumpet player with Georgia Fame. And he played on a couple of tracks of ours with the rest of the horn section and Speedy Acquire, who was a conquer player. We used to score uh, dope from Speedy. <laughs> and uh, anyway, Eddie used to get a little high and he would, uh, he could, he, he'd stutter. And you, I've got to tell you, I've got to tell you, he could never get the words out. Uh, we'd laugh, you know. Anyway, Ronnie um, wrote that song, Eddie's Dreaming, uh, about him. And it was a loving, just a little laugh with him. And he, we got him him and the guys to play horns on the track. And when it originally came out, we'd, we'd faded the track down to just the horns. And then the horns stopped. And we left it going because he said, Eddie said, Oh, I've got to tell you, I've got to tell you, no. And he couldn't say it. It was just him being high, you know. So it was perfect. Well, yeah. invariably, as it's been re-released over the years, uh, it fades out. And an engineer in a studio, unknown to us, in another country sometimes, but someone who doesn't know us and doesn't give a damn, it fades out. That's where they stop the track. And nobody hears Eddie's dreaming. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So when Rob Cager sent me all the tracks, I listen to every single track diligently, and Eddie's Dreaming stops right there. And I called her, I said, for fuck's sake, the whole point of the song was the end, which keeps getting taken out. It's not right. You've got to put it in. So um, there are two versions, I believe, of Eddie's Dreaming. One of them is the finished, the complete one. Yeah, it's wonderful to hear that. You know, it's, yeah. it's one of the first... Yeah, you know, one one of the few songs that has that West Indian, London West Indian feel, you know that. Yeah, it was totally Caribbean. That's exactly right. That's what we tried to do. We had like Speedy on there, on congas and Eddie and uh, Derek Wadsworth on trombone and Lynn on uh, sax. I think Lynn Dobson. Yeah, I'm really really pleased. It was, uh, and I I had a lot of parts on there. I, yeah, I, I I almost thought I should have got a songwriting credit. But you, I didn't you did, it, you did actually. Favorite. You did get a songwriting credit on that one. Oh, did I? Yeah, yeah. It says Mary at Lane McLagan. You, you got it. Oh, okay. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice to get on with me neighbours? But they make it very clear they've got no room for ravers. Um, what are your memories of uh, Lazy Sunday? Well, it's funny... I've talked about this a bunch of times. I'm not sure now if I'm telling someone, you know, Kenny's story or Ronnie's story or my story. But as I remember, he came in with the song and we laughed because it was him. He had his house in Chiswick, which he got thrown out of. He got thrown out of every place. And he had 
dogs who shat everywhere. It was horrible. <laughs> and he had this big painting, a mural over one wall of Thor, from the comics, from uh, Marvel Comics. And uh, it was a terrible shit. Oh, he had cats and everything. Oh, it was horrible. Um, and he came in with the dog, and it was just like he was telling you the story of what it was like living in that house. And it was pretty funny, but he was writing about um, his life, but he was also writing about Westland Terrace, because um, Hello was, James, how's your birth Lombardo? That was Marge, or Madge, whatever her name was, who used to polish, do our polishing in the house. <laughs> <laughs> but mainly, she was on pills, she would like waffle and waffle, and you'd walk downstairs from your bedroom, go to breakfast, and you'd try and run past her. But she'd get you in conversation. It was hell. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, uh, when Steve came in with it, it was a little slow, and it was it was very funny. We laughed. But he went out of the room maybe to have a piss or something, and we started taking the piss out of it. Because it was funny, but we didn't really want to do it, you know. <laughs> yeah. And he came in and laughed. He said, oh, that's great. And we cut it like that, which would have been great if it was just on the album, but... When Andrew heard it, he put it out as a single, and, you know, maybe that was the beginning of the end for Steve, but uh, it certainly put us in a different category, you know. We tried, we were trying to be, the, you know, the R&B soul band, not the teeny bop pop band, and then that put us right back in it. Yeah, yeah, right, I bet. What about Afterglow of Your Love? Amazing organ sound on that one. Was it recorded well, differently? Well, you know, I, I've asked it, I've asked a bunch of people. Um, there's organ, but there's another instrument I played. And it was it was at Olympic, and it was it was something that was sitting there. And I, for years, I thought it was a theremin, because I'd read about a theremin. And then I played a theremin in a studio in L.A. recently. And uh, it wasn't a theremin. But it was some other instrument that was left there from a movie session. And, um, but the organ is pretty, the sound of it's really great. Thank you, Lynn. Uh, and it's one of my favorite Small Faces tracks. I've tried to do that, that and um, Tin Soldier with the band, but it's, they're too high for me. And also there's too many instruments. Yeah, yeah. It's hard, especially uh, Tin Soldier, it's hard to get, I mean, you know, there's three keyboards for a start two guitars, and Steve's fantastic voice, and P.P. Uh, Arnold's voice. It was um, it's a difficult one, but Afterglow is a fantastic song. So the other instrument you're playing is some kind of keyboard, though, but it's sort of just... I know, I'm not sure if it's a keyboard. Um, that's why I thought it was a theremin, because I saw someone using it, and you, you used your hands. It was something. Yeah. With, um, I don't know whether I was using a, a, a pad or something. I have no idea what it was. I was wondering if it was double-tracked or something, because it just sounds so meaty and thick, you know. So it's just something else is mixed in there. Yeah, it's what some other instrument. It may have been a keyboard, I just don't remember. Yeah. Well, well, since you mentioned Tin Soldier, you know, tell me, you had three keyboards on that? that when you yeah, break it down actually, for it? On, the, on, the, on the box set, you can uh, hear the original intro 
dial about five or six times. Yeah. Uh, which we then dumped. <laughs> you had this whole thing on Steve after me doing there, and Steve come in with a damn, 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 It's fantastic for me to listen to that again, just hear us working in the studio. Yeah. I mean, you get an idea how, how busy we were. Yeah, I mean, that still, you know, could be the greatest Sport Faces track. And, yeah, I think so. And, and uh, I don't know. And yeah, yeah, I mean, obvi and obviously one of Steve's best vocals, you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a Steinway, well, it's uh, and Hammond on that. Yeah, it's, in, it's an incredible song. And on the box set, I don't know, the, the, the bass really comes out in a way that I'd never heard it before. It really startled yeah. me the first time I put it on on the box set. It's like, yeah, it's fantastic. His lines are fantastic. Yeah. You know, uh, Dunn stole um, one of those lines for a song called Carnaby Street. Ronnie, Ronnie and Steve never knew this, but I was doing an interview for the Small Faces DVD some years ago, and the guy who was interviewing me, whose name I can't remember right now, but... He wrote the book, um, the Stax book, uh, Soulsville, yeah. um, the story of Stax Records. And uh, I said, it's always intrigued me. I said, there's a song they put out, I, I heard later on, called Carnaby Street. He said, oh, yeah, that was after Tin Soldier. They nicked that lick from you guys. <laughs> what, an, well, yeah, what an amazing tribute, you know. After I you know. <laughs> Our idols copying us, copying us. They were listening to us. There you go. Yeah, it just feeds back into itself. That's great. I didn't know yeah. that. Um, so, look, when you read these interviews with the small faces from back then, and especially Steve, losing the image of the Tinny Bopper band, that's a constant theme, you know. Yeah. But, you, know, what, you know, what's your take on that? You talked about it a little bit there. With the... Well, the thing is, you know, when I first joined, um, it was very Teeny Bop. They had one record out, and they looked so fucking cute, you know. <laughs> well, we'd get on a, a show and there'd be screams for Steve, Ronnie, and Kenny. And soon enough, Steve screams for Mac. I thought, they're mad. I'm not a star. I'm just like a geezer. And, uh, but after a while, you know, that happened a lot. And then the, the girls, it was always little girls, would jump the stage. You know, it's amazing the strength of pubescent girls. I mean, I've seen iron, uh, you know, guards, whatever you call them, railings just bent out of shape by girls. It's unbelievable. Well, they'd jump on stage and we'd run straight to the car out of the dressing room, out of the stage. And, um, I mean, we were only supposed to play two 20-minute spots, but some nights we only played 10 minutes and we'd have to run. Yeah. It was a real drag. We wanted to play, you know. And we knew there were guys there, too, who were listening, but bit by bit it became more and more girls and we needed to get our fans back, our guy fans, because we wanted to play we wanted, we were a soul band for fuck's sake, you know. It's, so it took a while, but it it worked. But it was never. It was kind of different. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it seemed after maybe after Ogden's, it seemed like you lost that teeny bop attack to some extent. But still, in the interview, Steve seems like he's not satisfied with it. You know, he's always fighting against that. Even maybe it wasn't even there anymore. You know. Yeah, I mean, the whole time, times have changed. I mean, 
it's like the mod period. It's only a couple of years, really. It's, um, you know, it, it all changed, and we weren't relevant, really. Yeah. We became irrelevant. And we didn't have the sense to be like the Who and maintain our relevance. Well, I mean, it seems like you were musically, but maybe you'd yeah. already been pigeonholed or something. By, well, by Steve got pissed off. You know, he didn't want to be in the band. I had all this shit. We wanted, he wanted to become heavy. He needed Pete Frampton to join the band, but we didn't want Pete Frampton to join the band. There was no point. Um, I'm thinking about uh, the Universal. It was an odd choice for a single. I mean, was that a deliberate decision to sort of do something almost uncommercial? You know, definitely. Well, it, uh, it was... Uh, we just thought it'd be different. I mean, he recorded it on a cassette, and I'm not even on it. You know, the overdubs were done at Olympic. But, I mean, really, we should have recut it as a band, I think. But, you know, it's history now. Um, when that flopped, apparently, he I read somewhere else that it, when it flopped, he said, well, that's me out because I'm responsible, totally responsible. I've done great. Lazy Sunday and now this. Um, I don't know. I think he just wanted to leave anyway. Yeah, looking for an excuse, maybe. But, you know, it, it, during that last year, you're still making some great music, which is on the box. And another one I wanted to talk to you about was Wham Bam Thank You, Ma'am, because that thing is just so powerful, you know? Yeah, there's several versions of that. Yeah. Um, I actually quit the band because we were recording it, and Steve was pretty much telling me what to play, and I, I'd had enough. And I just said, oh, well, fuck that, I quit. And um, our tour manager came to my house, he said, look, you, you've got to come back. Well, I went back in the studio the next day or two days later, and Steve apologized. He said, I'm sorry, I didn't realize I was getting on you. He could be really, you know, dominating and uh, with anyone, you know, with everyone. But he said, here, let me play the track. And he called Nicky Hopkins immediately, and he had a, a track with Nicky Hopkins playing piano. I thought, oh, that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> that's way to say, fuck you, you split the band. <laughs> you already replaced, you know. Were you pissed off by it when, when, oh, when he yeah. did it? <laughs> you know, Nicky Hopkins was a genius. You know? <laughs> yeah, just he hadn't even given you a day to calm down or anything. He no, no, he, he, he got on the blower straight away. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, when the band split up, it seems like there was a lot of hard feelings, especially towards Steve. I mean, I guess yeah, he broke yeah. it up. Did you manage to make peace with him before he died? I know there was a 78 well, reunion, but... It actually, was... I made peace with him because he came to me and wanted to... Well, we were asked to do a video for Lazy Sunday and Ichiku Park by Tony Calder, who had been our co-manager with Andrew Oldham and co-record company boss right. and co-publisher and all that bollocks. And he'd bought up, he'd left immediate, or immediate, I think we closed them down. And he uh, joined NEMS, which was originally Brian Epstein's company. Right. And he'd taken over NEMS and bought up all the immediate stock, <laughs> fucking thief. <laughs> and uh, so they asked, he said, for a £1,000 each, will you do this? So we were all shipped, with yeah. And we spent the day together. We enjoyed each, each other's company so much. Did the two videos. Then went to Joe Brown's studio because he lived near near uh, Steve, and Steve and Joe had become friends. And he had a great studio in his garage, so we went there and we started recording because we got ideas and it was good. Except 
I was I was writing songs with Steve, and Ronnie and Steve weren't getting on, so Ronnie quit the first night, and uh, he just got angry and quit. And, uh, and I thought, oh, fuck this. Anyway, we stayed together, but it was pretty horrible, and we made two albums and toured on them, and then I got the fuck out. I just got, I had enough of Steve. Yeah. And he got in touch with me in L.A. the day before he died, and uh, or the night, two nights before he died. Somebody, he gave someone his phone number. And he'd been recording with Pete Frampton, and Pete Frampton had told him to fuck off, basically, because he wouldn't stop doing dope. And, and Peter, they had an agreement. They would record, but Steve had to be clean. And he did for a few days, and then he, he was using blow, and he was getting drunk and fucked up. And so Pete and he uh, stopped working together. Pete fired him. Yeah. <laughs> and he got, you see, someone was coming to my gig because I had a regular gig. I didn't know he was in L.A. I got a note during the show, and I never called him. He went home that night, and uh, he died the next day in the fire. Yeah, yeah. But I wasn't going to make peace with Steve. I didn't want to see him because he was annoying you know, at that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the only reason he called me was because I would... He was thinking I had blow or something, you know, or somewhere to stay. Because when we got the, the small faces back together, it was all very good. And so he came over to my house one night, and we spent two days recording songs that we, we were co-writing. And he drank me out of house and home and ate me out of house and home. My wife, Kim, couldn't bear it. And so when she left, we did get the record deal with Atlantic, but... Three quarters of that money went to pay off his ex-manager, D. Anthony, and his record company, A&M. So he knew that. He knew he had a, a debt that he couldn't get past. He couldn't make a record deal on his own. He had to get suckers like us in to bail him out. And so we thought we were get, making a load of money. We actually, I think we were going to get half a million pounds. And we eventually got something like 100,000 to split which was split four ways again, uh, but not with Ronnie, with uh, Rick Wills, who came in out of nowhere and had 25,000 pounds. He was very happy. <laughs> I got 25,000, but it should have been a lot fucking more. Yeah. And Steve was then free of all his commitments. <laughs> <laughs> and Rich. Yeah, it wasn't a happy ending, but it wasn't likely to be. We ended really in uh, 68, whatever, 69. So um, on Facebook, I asked a few of my friends to come up with some questions for you. I said, I'm going to give you a Mac tomorrow. Some of them are stupid, but some, they come up with a few quite good ones, so I'll throw them at you. All right. Uh, all right one, one of my friends came up with, uh, how big an influence was the Jewish community on the nascent East End mod scene? Did you use <laughs> Jewish tailors? Ah, <laughs> oh, Jewish tailors. Where, where would we be without Dougie Mellon? <laughs> Uh, well, and anyway, any clothes you bought, any uh, uh, if you bought a pair of pants or they needed to be t taken up, they were sent to the East End overnight. Boom. And a little Jewish guy would be fixing your pants or your jacket or your shirt. And Dougie Millens was Jewish, and he uh, designed the suits. He, you know, 
he uh, cut the pieces, but they were all put together in the East End by other Jews. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Very good question. <laughs> and the East End's completely changed that. It's all fucking rich young people, I believe. Oh, yeah, it's completely different now. And Indians. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's All, all the signs are, you know, aren't even yeah. in English anymore. Right. Uh, um, here's one. Any memories of the all too short lived Quiet Melon? <laughs> well, it was it wasn't short lived. It wasn't really. It didn't exist. We um, we got a gig. Uh, somebody bailed out of a gig at Oxford University or Cambridge, one of the Oxford, I think. And they were always well paid and well. We were well fed, and uh, so we we didn't have a band. We were just forming faces. And Art Wood, Ronnie's brother, uh, had asked if we would cut a few tracks with him at Pie, I think it was, or Phillips Pie. And uh, he didn't have any songs either, so we wrote some stuff. So we became, we, 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 we were rehearsing as faces, so we had a couple of songs. We had, you know, basically the Muddy Waters live at Newport album rehearsed, and uh, a couple of songs. But um, Kim Gardner was playing bass with Art at some point, so he was there, Art was there, Rod was there, um, and we all just, we jammed, really. And then they said, oh, some other band has, has uh, called in sick, can you play their show too? So we got twice the money. <laughs> and that was quite mellow, that was it. That was all we ever did. So it was just kind of a weekend experience, yeah. really. And, yeah. and we, we were drinking champagne and, and draft beer and strawberries and ice cream and roast beef, it was, Fantastic. <laughs> the, the catering was unbelievable. How the other half live. Yeah. <laughs> we were drunk as skunks by the time we went on stage, I tell you. Uh, here's a good one, though. You did cover it in your book. Um, yeah. Ask him about touring with Howlin' Wolf before the Small Faces. Well, it wasn't the Small Faces, which was the Mule Skin. Yeah before, yeah, before the Small Faces. Oh, right, right. Well, um, our first uh, job with him was, I think, it was the Ricky Tick Club out in Reading or Guildford or somewhere out that way. Um, and we got there and rehearsed for a while. We got there in the early afternoon and set up and rehearsed. And then the door opened and there was this big man. And we all went running out to shake his hand and he put his arms around all of us and he looked down at us because he was quite a big man. Yeah. He said, my boys. <laughs> and he just made us feel like we were great. And we probably weren't, but we were very keen and we tried real hard. We loved him. He was a most lovable guy. And Hubert Sumlin, uh, his guitars, was amazing. Yeah. And, you know, he had his comfort zone in Hubert. So, we, you know, we did what we could. But, uh, you know, it, it didn't depend so much on us. But, you know, we, we revered him and loved him so much. And we did that show. And then we got another show at Chelmsford Corn Exchange, which uh, I played later on with Smallface. And then after that, that same night, which is where the photograph of me and him was taken outside there on our way to the Club de Rique in Tottenham, which yeah. is an all-nighter. All night he went on to about two or three in the morning, uh, everyone popping pills and everything. Yeah. And he was fucking great. He would dominate an audience. He would, like, lean out there and horrify an audience. He would scare them. But he was the warmest, most lovely bloke. We went to see him off the airport. And it was only us, like three of the guys out of the mule skins. Only us. Nobody there to see him off. Yeah. He gave me a hundred dollars bill. He said, "Can you go and get me a bottle of bourbon?" Jack Daniels or something. Well, like, there was nowhere there. It sold booze then. Couldn't buy a bottle or get a drink. 
So I give it back. I mean, he signed my albums. They're all long gone, sadly. And uh, off he went to America. You know, Hubert told me about five years ago, he came here to Austin, God rest his soul. And uh, he said, oh, he said, the wolf loved you because I was showing him the picture of me and the wolf from my book. He said, the wolf loved you. He wanted to take you back to Chicago. (laughs) (laughs) I'd known that I'd have gone. Well, yeah, no kidding. So were the audiences for Wolf like mods and stuff like that? I mean, I guess. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And how did how did they react? Did they love it? Oh, fuck. Yeah. Yeah. Fucking hell. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't just mods. It was it was it was a mix, really. I mean, mods was in, you know, at that point, there were mods in London and maybe there were mods in a couple of other cities, but it was really a London thing. And you go out of town and people were trying to be mods, but they didn't have the clothes, you know. Yeah. It was fun. Even on Ready, Steady, Go, you look at some of those old episodes, there's a few mods they get in front of the cameras, but you look at everybody else, they got just, they're looking normal, you know, just school kids, kind of. Yeah, right, of course, yeah. And it, whenever they do a movie of that, that time, everyone's totally mod. Well, it wasn't like that, you know. Yeah, yeah. no, it's just, it was the same with the punk days. Yes, exactly, know. yeah. You know. Um, there was a few questions that were to do with bands you liked and bands you didn't like back then, and... and one interesting comment from a friend of mine. He said, I have a book somewhere that he wrote over a picture of Dave D. Dozy, Beaky Mick and Titch. These guys are arseholes. <laughs> well, <laughs> so I want to ask you about that. That was me. I don't, didn't mean it. I mean, literally, I just meant I didn't rate them as a fan. <laughs> they weren't. They, they were nice enough. You know, I mean, I'd, I, we'd bump into on TV shows. And go, oh, fuck you. And uh, I mean, the clothes were so bad. Yeah, yeah. Was, the music was so bad. What was there to you know, I like Bend It and all that. I mean, it's like Kiss or the Monkeys. You know, they weren't a real band. <laughs> what uh, What bands did you like? I mean, obviously, you probably like the Stones and the Who. Oh Beatles. yeah, Georgia Fame and uh, Gino Washington Ram Jam Band. I mean, there were some great bands out there, live bands. You know, Graham Bond. I used to like. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you must have seen Georgie and, and Graham Bond playing Hammonds before you got yours, or did they... That's right. It was Well, actually, thanks to, to Georgie, I saw he had an L102 or L101, whatever, and that's all I could afford. And I thought, well, he makes it sound right. Um, I thought uh, I thought maybe uh, Booker T was using a B3, but he wasn't. He was only on an M3, but you couldn't buy them in England at that time. You, they had them in Germany, strange enough, I found out later. Well, they, they, it was probably because they were taken over there by American servicemen or something, or sure. you know, people in the military, uh, because you couldn't buy them in England. They had an M101, 102, 103, which I eventually bought. But it wasn't the same. They had uh, the keys were the M3 that like the green onions that Booker played the green onions on. The keys are like the B3. They're solid, like piano keys, but the L were like computer keys, you know. Yeah. I mean, like uh, synthesizer keys. I mean, um, but uh, I forget what your question was. Yeah, you know, we just talked which bands that, that, that you liked, or maybe, or oh, maybe yeah. you, you know didn't like. You know, All right. but what were you talking about keyboards? That made me think of another one. Um, you used Mellotron on a couple of occasions. What, what was what was your thoughts about Mellotron? Um, I didn't like them. They they were fiddly fucking things. They would never work when you wanted them. Uh, but they were fun, you know. It was an interest. I used them, the sound on a couple of things. But I they, mean, you can buy them now. I wouldn't be not interested. 
Yeah, yeah. They were, they were temperamental, right? Because it was all tapes, yeah. right? Yeah, and the tapes would break. And you like so some keys wouldn't work in some configurations. You know, you could play like a whole band with some settings. You play a saxophone or a guitar. It's yeah. all lots of fun. I mean, John Lennon got the best out of it with the flutes. Yeah, right, right. Strawberry fields and all that. Yeah. Um, another Facebook question uh, about the phasing on Ichiku Park. Is it true that Eddie Kramer was annoyed that the effect was given to Glyn Johns to use on the small faces instead of Eddie Kramer to use on Hendrix? Do you know anything about that? No, but he, Eddie Kramer didn't invent it. It was George Kient. But yeah, it was but, given to given to you guys before him or something. Maybe he thought he could have... Uh, well, he was only a fucking... He wasn't an engineer. He was a second, like George was. And George had invented it. And we were the next session. And Glyn Johns was our engineer. Yeah. Eddie wasn't an engineer back then. It's funny, I hadn't seen Eddie in years, and he came to my show in, uh, near San Francisco in uh, July. It was great to see him again. Yeah. Um, well, so to wrap it up, something neat to wrap it up, maybe you could pick one or two of your absolute favorite Small Faces tracks. Tell me why. Well, you've already touched on them, really. King yeah. Soldier and Afterglow. Uh were my two favorites, I think. I mean, there's there's other stuff that I really like. Um, I do like Eddie's Dreaming. It's it's a nice memory. Yeah, that's, a, that's an overlooked track, I think. I love that song. Always yeah. puts me in a happy mood, that one. Well, it, that's right. right. Me too. And the lovely thing is, we had such fun making it. And I remember, you know, that day of those days when the horn players came in and Speedy put his thing in. And because Eddie hung, Eddie would always try and get us to eat spinach. <laughs> Eddie was a health food nut. You know, he used to smoke marijuana because it was healthy. He considered healthy. And he would eat a lot of spinach. He said, yep, yeah, you got to, yeah, you know, he's talking like that. You know, you got to eat your spinach. And we go, fuck it, spinach, leave it out. All we have, I mean, we had like fish and chips and really had bad diets back then. I ate spinach on a, almost on a daily basis now. It's quite funny. I think of Eddie. And I bumped into him in Japan about seven or eight, ten years ago, uh, I was doing the Fuji, Mount Fuji Festival, and he was playing with somebody. Uh, I was playing with Billy Bragg. But uh, it was so funny to see him. I got Eddie's dreaming. He said, yeah, that's right, man. <laughs> so he, he probably loved the song, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I would think so. Well, I think I got everything I need. Um, well, thanks for asking some interesting questions. That was my that was my goal. Before you, with somebody else, and he wasn't talking about small base boxer, but who asked as interesting a question as I've ever heard? It was, I've just had two great hours. <laughs> oh, that's good to know. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like you know you've been interviewed so many times, so I try to maybe try and touch on some things that I hadn't heard before. Because, you know, I've read your book, you know, I've read all the, right, right. I got all the, I got all the reissues, I read all the line of notes. So I try to think of some things that I ha I don't already know. So. Well, you, you did good. You know, if I talk about Ichiku Park, I'm bound to say, you know, that's on the same story. But, um, you know, I mean, the thing is, it's, it makes it interesting for me and for you, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, you know, my readers don't want to read this. You know, oh, no, here we go again. Not a small faces interview. But you know, I've got, I've got to ask about Ichiku Park and Lazy Sunday. Or yeah, people yeah. say, why didn't you even ask about Ichiku Park? You idiot, you know. By the way, did you get your name from Stax Records? I did. Well, yeah, it was actually a combination of two things: uh, Stax Records and the bass player for the Pretty Things, John Stax. 
Oh, right. Because when I first came here, you know, I was illegal, so I needed a name. So I, thought, I always thought John Stacks was cool that he took his name from Stacks Records. So I thought, oh, yeah, I'm good. That's brilliant. I'll have that. But, but, you know, there's a friend of mine. Uh, he's the son of a, a dearer friend who lived in L.A., but she's from Texas, and they now live here. And uh, he was into the specials when I met him in L.A. And I, she showed me into his bedroom, and he had a keyboard set up, and he had checkerboard wallpaper all around. It was the specials and, uh, you know, that whole two-tone. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I said, oh, let me show you. And I showed him Green Onions, and it changed his fucking life. He now lives here. He's got a band called Macklemore Avenue. He's made albums of their stuff and his own instrumentals. His son, he's got two sons. One is called um, Memphis Redding. (laughs) (laughs) And the other one, it's not Otis. It should have been. I can't think what his other stuff is, but it's like, you know, duck or something crazy. It's really funny how it's, it's changed his whole life, you know. Well, you know, yeah, that's a whole universe there, that stacks. I know. You know, and for me too. Yeah. I mean, beautiful. I have, I got uh, a picture of Booker next to where I play the organ in my studio, and a picture of Ian Stewart next to my piano. Yeah, you know, yeah, he's, yeah. He's with me all the time. Um, great talking to you, Mac. Oh, I'm a Nice talking to you. Mike. You too. All right. Thanks for your time. And thanks for all the music. Thank you. Appreciate that. The Ugly Things Podcast was produced by James Archer and hosted by Mike Stacks. That's me. Ugly Things Magazine is available at the very coolest record and bookstores and at UglyThings.com. That's Ugly-Things.com, where you can also order back issues, vinyl, books and CDs, and read additional articles and reviews. Back issue number 37, with the Ian McLagan interview and lots more, is still available. Please subscribe to the podcast, rate us, leave a review, and spread the word to your friends. We would also really appreciate it if you'd consider becoming a Patreon supporter. For just a small monthly donation, Patreon members get exclusive access to all kinds of interesting bonus content. Your contribution will help us keep bringing you the very best in 1960s beat, garage, psychedelic music, and more. I'd like to send out a personal thank you to our top Patreon supporters. Charlie Koenigsacker, Keith Patterson, Sophia Swartz, Dean Curtis, David Biasotti, David Jones, Michael Barbara, Chip Lyon, Rob Brannigan, Stephen Schmidt, J. Paul Riger, and Derek Davidson. Thank you, all of you, for your support. And thank you for listening. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 